Good morning, friends. I'm going to uh, invite you to come back and take your seats, and we'll continue with our teaching time together this morning. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge, and we want to welcome you here, particularly uh, if you're visiting with us today. And as a pastor, one of the things that I get to do uh, fairly regularly is go and visit people when they are in the hospital. And beside most every bed in most every hospital, there's a screen, a monitor, that looks a little something like this. And when you go into the hospital, and especially if you're a patient, sometimes this kind of screen, it starts making beeping and buzzing and noises and all kinds of things. And you look at the numbers and you think, what in the world do they mean? What, what are these things that I'm seeing up on here? So I am going to help you decode as a non-medical expert. I'm going to help you decode what these numbers mean so that the next time you go into the hospital, the beeping is less mysterious to you, all right? So because what happens is, because I have a hospital badge, people think I know things, and so they ask me questions. So then I have to actually ask questions to figure out what in the world is going on. So uh, it's complicated, but the top line is your heart rate, all right? So normally, you want to see a heart rate between 60 and 110 beats per minute. That's sort of in a decent zone on average. Um, depending on the person. So the second set of numbers, the red ones, that's blood pressure. The third one down, uh, you may or may not have this if you go in. This, this you'll have if you, are, uh, if you have a head injury or if you are, uh, have had a stroke because this is intracranial pressure. And this is for patients. Uh, and you want to see values there up to 200, or sorry, 20 mmHg. I have no idea what mm or hg means. Just the number 20 is good. That's all I know. The last number, the blue wavy line, is oxygen saturation. And so that you want to have high, like 94 to 99% if you can. So this is your handy-dandy guide to the bedside monitor next time you go into the hospital. Medical professionals, you can come and correct me and argue with me all you want later on. That's the layperson's version. That's all I know about this. <laughs> Irene's looking at me like, you're, you're, <laughs> she's giving me a sketchy look, like, don't take medical advice from your pastor, she's saying. <laughs> That's fair. So the reason I do this, though, is this machine helps the medical team understand your health when you're laying there. And so the question that we want to ask today is, if you were to hook this kind of a machine up and try and diagnose the spiritual health of a person or group of people, how would you do it? What would you look for? How would you know if someone was spiritually healthy? How do you know if you're spiritually healthy? We're in a teaching series uh, this summer in the Old Testament, in the book of Second Kings. And one of the things that this book does regularly for it, and the writer of this book does, is gives us spiritual health assessment statements of each subsequent king or ruler that we bump into. And it's like they've hooked up the diagnostic equipment to the ancient nation state of Judah and Israel, and they're giving us a readout. 
and they're telling us, is this a healthy moment or a non-healthy moment in the life of this group of people? So let me catch you up to speed with the spiritual vital signs on the health of some of the leaders and the nation in this period of time. So I'll give you an explanation of how to read this chart. The line across the top is the year, the uh, time frame, and it might be a little bit hard to see. King David, for example, comes to power uh, just before 1000 BC. And so along the timeline, we see that these are subsequent kings and leaders of the nation of Judah. And at the bottom of the chart are listed the names of the prophets who did their best to try and bring spiritual health and diagnostic and spiritual healing into the nations of Israel and the north and Judah in the south. And so these were doing their work concurrently. So in the King series, though we're focused more on the kings, we also want to remember that the prophets are doing their writing and their work concurrently with this. And uh, in the boxes are the names of the kings of Israel. So this is uh, just the kings of Judah. And last week we talked about the northern kingdom of Israel and how they came to the end of their line because the king of Assyria came and overthrew the capital Samaria and sent all of the people into exile. So this is a chart, a spiritual health chart for the patient's just in the kingdom of Judah in the south because Judah actually continues for several hundred years beyond the Assyrian exile of the northern kingdom. And so the blue line is the overall spiritual health of the ancient nation of Judah. And you can see under David and under Solomon, it's at a high point. It's looking pretty good. But then the patient's health takes a turn for the worse under kings Rehoboam, Abijah, and Asa. So it goes down. Then it dips back up because there's a good king. We have King Jehoshaphat who leads people back toward worshiping God. So the nation's spiritual health stabilizes. But that doesn't last long. Things tank very quickly again. It goes down under Jehoram and Ahaziah. Then under King Joash, which Pastor Wally spoke about three weeks ago, we get another health resurgent. The patient will live. It's doing okay. Because King Joash leads people back into a vitalized relationship with God. But then things take a turn for the worse again. Under Amaziah and just as quickly, we get a little bump for good under Uzziah, but then under Jotham and Ahaz, Pastor Mike preached about King Ahaz two weeks ago, and Ahaz, we get a real low. I mean, this, this king was intent upon leading people far, far away from God. Worship of God was forsaken. The temple is totally in disrepair and ruins. People are oppressed by foreign armies. It's really, really bad at this point in the nation's history. But then, they get a good king. Only a couple of kings in this whole series can be named as good kings. And this king is named King Hezekiah. 
And King Hezekiah's story becomes very significant for Judah. So significant, in fact, that it's recorded in three different places in the Bible. It's recorded in 2 Kings 17, sorry, 18, 19, and 20. It's recorded in the middle of the book of Isaiah. And it's also recorded in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. And because Hezekiah's story takes up so much real estate in the scriptural account, we're going to split it into two parts. And the Sunday after our baptism Sundays, Pastor Mike will come back and finish off the story of King Hezekiah. But if you have your Bibles or your devices, turn with me to the book of 2 Kings. And we're going to start reading and looking at Hezekiah's story in 2 Kings chapter 18. And we're going to see this morning that In King Hezekiah's life, there are five lessons that we can learn to help us assess our own spiritual health and vitality in our lives and in our world today. And so let's pray as we look into God's word together this morning. Gracious God, you are kind and good. Your desire in the scriptures is to reveal yourself and to also reveal to us things that we need to pay attention to. And so God, I pray you would open our eyes to see those things, open our ears to hear those things, open our hearts that we would be receptive to those things. Spirit of God, you are the one that teaches, that corrects, that guides us into truth. And so we pray that you would do that for us as individuals and as a community in this place today. And we ask this, In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Well, I'm going to be reading from 2 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 1 in the New Living Translation. So Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, who was that horrible king, began to rule over Judah in the third year of King Hoshea's reign in Israel. We talked about King Hoshea last week. King Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for 29 years. His mother was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. So I want to stop here and note the contrast with Hezekiah, who is right away introduced to us as a good king who follows in the path and in the operative mode of David, to Ahaz, his father, who was one of the worst kings that the nation had ever seen. Ahaz was a horrible king because not only of how far he led people away from God, But he actually designed and desired to try and lead people in worshiping other gods. So he, uh, Mike told us about how he actually built another altar right in the temple. It was like, ah, that old altar that God set up, we don't want to need that anymore. Let's scooch that out of the way and put a new one. And he instructed the priest, just use this altar instead. I know God doesn't like that, but I'm telling you as the king, let's do this. And then he also led people in the practice of child sacrifice ritually. And so he's a horrible, horrible king. And we see how bad things got under his leadership. 
And yet, his own son grows up under that kind of leadership, in that kind of a home, and yet by the age of 25, he's already making different decisions in his life. He makes, Hezekiah makes a radical turn and a radically different set of choices. He does, it says, what is right. And so I wanna say upfront that one of the lessons we can learn from Hezekiah's life is that your spiritual parentage is not always an automatic predictor of your spiritual heritage. In other words, the legacy that you inherit from your parent or parents is not automatically the legacy that you have to pass on. Your parentage is not a predictor of your heritage, for good or for bad. You can make different choices. It's not a predictor of your heritage, meaning like, well, if I'm just a pretty good person, then my kids will be pretty good people, and they'll kind of, I'm sure they'll come to know and understand about God and about faith. You have to work at that. That's not an automatic given. And on the flip side of that, some of you have come from and experienced very broken homes and your background is filled with all kinds of very detrimental things. And yet, you have managed to break some of those cycles that have existed in your families. And some of those cycles have existed negatively for generations in your families. And you, by God's grace, are walking away from those things to God's honor and glory. And so I want to applaud those of you who are doing that kind of hard work. Because it goes underappreciated sometimes. Those of you who saw something in the lives of generations above you and said, I don't want that something unhealthy, and said, I'm going to choose a different pathway for myself. I want to change that in my life. I want a different outcome. This is incredibly hard work. But your spiritual parentage does not automatically predict your spiritual heritage. You can leave a different heritage for those that come behind you. And so I want to remind us today that it does not matter where you start out in your life and in the home or the family of origin. It matters where you end up. Hezekiah had a horrible upbringing by all accounts in terms of his father's leadership and spiritual dynamic in the home. He had a horrible education. He had a bad example for a father, but he made a change and a turn in his life. It could have been easy for him to sit around and make excuses and say, well, I didn't have anybody to steer me straight, so I just continued doing what I saw my father doing. But he made changes in his life. It's always easier to sit around and say, woe is me, I got dealt a bad hand in life, I just couldn't do anything about it. And Hezekiah would have been a great candidate for this. But yet he changed the trajectory of his family, and indeed, he was able to effect significant change in the nation itself, as we'll see, because he chose to follow God. So your spiritual parentage is not always an automatic predictor of your spiritual heritage.
Well, what kind of things did he do differently? Let's keep reading 2 Kings 18, verses 4 and 5. Hezekiah removed the pagan shrines. He smashed the sacred pillars. He cut down the Asherah poles. Those were worship of another local pagan deity. He broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people of Israel had begun offering sacrifices to it. The bronze serpent was called Nehushtan. Now, let's pause again for a moment because it's here we bump up against a weird part of Israel's history and their story. If you rewind the clock, when the nation was led by Moses out of Egypt and they're wandering for a period of time in the wilderness, the people experience a plague and it's a plague of poisonous snakes that are biting people and people are dying. And Moses says, God, what do we do about this? And God says to Moses, I want you to take uh, and fashion a bronze snake It's like a replica of these poisonous snakes and I want you to put it on a pole and I want you to hold it up for people. And when people look to that snake, they're going to receive divine healing if they've been bitten by a poisonous snake. And so Moses does this. It's in Numbers chapter 21 and it works. People are healed from their sickness. And that's the last we hear about this bronze serpent until we actually get into the New Testament, where in the book of John, it gives us this echo and says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness in John 3, so Jesus will be lifted up, and when people look to Jesus, they'll find their healing. But we don't hear about it between then, except for this one little weird incident. So what happened, apparently, is that people had this bronze snake, they looked to it for healing, and then they carried it with them. And they liked it so much that they brought it into the land that God had given them. And they liked it so much that after a period of time, they started to actually worship it instead of God. And they gave it a name, Nehushtan, which you might have a little footnote in your Bible. And Nehushtan sounds like the Hebrew word that means snake or bronze or unclean thing. It's kind of a word pun that they gave this thing a name It was a bronze snake, and they gave it a name that kind of sounded like bronze snake. But this thing becomes problematic for people. It begins to trip them up. It begins to, what started as a good thing, something that God gave them for their healing, they begin to look to that for their purpose. See, the people of God were given clear instructions on how to worship God. But over time, they began to say, you know what, I want to just make sure that, yeah, 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 we can worship God. That all sounds fine and good. I'll go to temple. I'll do all of those things. But I want to hedge my bets just in case. And you know, we've got that thing. Remember way back when great, great, great grandpa talked about that like bronze serpent thing and how people received healing from that. I mean, maybe it has some kind of mystical powers that we didn't know about now. Maybe we should worship it too just to kind of make sure and appease this kind of local, maybe it's like a local pagan deity that we need to kind of worship just in case this whole one true God thing isn't working out. The snake could be a really good backup plan for us. I mean, the snake did heal people at one time, am I right? So they set it up and they actually start to get tripped up in the worship of it. And this becomes a problem, of course, 
Because what happens is if we translate it into our lives, we too have a temptation and a tendency to take what once were good things and turn them into ultimate things. We said a couple of weeks ago, the meaning of the word idolatry, we think we're all very sophisticated and we don't worship idols, but the meaning of the word idolatry is simply anything that we turn to for our primary source of meaning and validation apart from God. And so at this time in history, these people had taken this snake and this thing, it was good. God had given it to them at one point for their healing. And they had turned it into something beyond what God had intended it to be. They were now looking to it to provide a source and a sense of ultimate meaning and purpose for them. They were worshiping it. And we think to ourselves as very sophisticated, post-enlightenment, modern Western people that we are not idolaters. But if we think about the meaning of idolatry, we can do the same thing. We don't do it with bronze snakes, but we can take good things that God's given us and begin to elevate them higher and higher in our lives until they function and we turn them into places where we're finding ultimate source of meaning and purpose in our lives. Even good things that God gives to us for our benefit and for our good and our protection can become, if we warp them, objects of worship. Our marital status, family, identity, sexuality, education, achievements, possessions, all kinds of things that can be good, we can take them and if we begin to elevate them higher and higher and higher in our lives until ultimately, instead of trusting God, we're saying to them, you know what, that's really where I find my source of deepest fulfillment and purpose in my life. That's idolatry. Because the human heart is wired for worship. We desire to put something in our lives to help us make sense of the world in which we live, to find a sense of ultimate purpose and meaning and fulfillment. And whenever we attempt to find that outside of a meaningful relationship with God who created us in the universe, ultimately it's going to leave us coming up empty and unsatisfied. So I want to say to you today that if you're here and you feel a sense of hollowness when it comes to meaning and purpose, and like you still haven't found what it is that you're looking for, you're still searching for that sense of purpose and meaning ultimately in your life. It may be that you're trying to put something else in the place where God belongs. Because none of the things that we try to put there as humans will ultimately satisfy us. Only a life-changing relationship with the living God will ultimately bring meaning and purpose in places like, and will right-size your career or your net worth or your family. But all of those things, if we try to make those into the ultimate purpose and aim of our lives, ultimately they will not satisfy us. And so maybe for you here today, 
you feel that internal wrestling. You're still searching. You feel like, ah, I listen to other people talk about that sense of, or that song that we sang about peace that's undeniable, or that God is good, and I listen, and other people seem like they experience that, and for me, I don't. Maybe for you, you've never made that choice and decision to say, you know what, God, I want to put you at the very center of my life. I want to trust you in that way, at that level. And you would do that by praying. And prayer is simply talking to God and saying, God, I need you. I want you in my life. I reject the lie that I can find ultimate and eternal meaning and purpose outside of you. And so today, I want to surrender. I want to come and be a part of your family. I want to find my life and my focus and my meaning in you. And if you want to do that today, I want to encourage you at the end of our time, before you leave, come and talk to me. Talk to somebody who you came with, if you know someone, and we would be more than pleased to lead you through that process and help you start that journey with God. It's the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. And we want to help you both begin and walk out that journey of finding meaning and purpose in God. So that's something uh, that we can learn from this little sidebar in Israel's history is we all have that capacity to turn good things into ultimate things. And maybe you need to assess your own life and figure out if there's some priority reassessment that needs to happen. So back to Hezekiah's story because he's gotten serious about busting these things up. For centuries now, this snake has been hanging around and finally Hezekiah is the guy that gets to it and says, we're done with this. We need to be finished with all of these other things. And a lot of the other kings actually don't quite get around to taking away the high places or these places of idolatry that uh, Israel and Judah have been worshiping in. But Hezekiah really takes a sense of personal responsibility to this. He cleans house. Listen to the spiritual health assessment given to his leadership in 2 Kings 18, 5 to 7. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all of the kings of Judah, either before or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything, and he carefully obeyed all of the commands that the Lord had given to Moses. So the Lord was with him, and Hezekiah was successful in everything that he did. Pretty high praise. Pretty strong health assessment. The monitor looks really good on Hezekiah, in terms of the health and the health of the nation as well. And here's where we come across this third lesson from Hezekiah's life and leadership because it can be easy for us to think, wow, that Hezekiah, he just trusted God and poof, you know, it says that things went really well for him. Wasn't that nice for him? Wouldn't it be great? And the thing is that he both trusted in God and he acted he did things. He didn't just sort of trust God and, oh, God, I hope that those people stop walking away from you. No, he actually it quite personally took it on to go out into those high places and get rid of some of those places of idolatry. So he took action. He didn't just sit around thinking, oh, God, I trust you, I love you, you know, some kind of uh, forever kingly worship service that he was having. He, got, he rolled up his sleeves and he got out there and said, okay, let's get busy. There's some things that we got to do. Let's clean house. And sometimes when I hear people pray, I hear things like, 
Oh God, I pray that you would just help people who are driving by this building on 64th just somehow mystically sense that your presence is here on a Sunday morning at 1029 and the Holy Spirit will just turn their wheel of their car. Jesus, take the wheel, turn them into the parking lot and they'll just come in, they'll fall on their knees in repentance and faith and all, won't that be great? Which may happen, possibly, but it's more likely that God's like, um, if you want them to come, why don't you take the invitation to the block party, go over, knock on your neighbor's door and say, hey, why don't you come with me to Jericho Ridge on a Sunday? Because sometimes when we pray, we can get a little bit lazy and just pray, oh God, I want you to do something about that. And sometimes God's saying, uh-huh, I want something done about that too. And it, you're aware of it because you're praying about it. And uh, you brought this to my attention. I want to bring it to yours. Get out there and get busy with something. Do something about it. Sometimes I hear people using the phrase, well, just let go and let God. And sometimes I want to say to people, yeah, maybe. I think that sometimes it's appropriate because people in that moment, what I hear them saying is, I'm, I'm wanting to express a deep confidence and trust that I'm handing this relationship or this situation over to God. And that's good, but sometimes God invites us to be the answer to our own prayers by taking action. So sometimes the better phrase might not be let go and let God. Sometimes the better phrase might be let go, demonstrate a trust in God, and then get going. Get busy with whatever it is that you need to do. And so there's a delicate balance between let go and let God, which is sometimes the wise and appropriate things to do, and sometimes the let go and get going kind of attitude that we need to have. Hezekiah doesn't just sit around asking, oh God, would you please deal with idolatry in Judah? It's really bad, God. Help people turn back and worship you. No. He organizes, he gets stuff done, he goes after it, and he starts getting rid of some of those places. And here's a list of some of the things that he did. He got rid of all of the pagan shrines, he reopened, he repaired the temple for worship, he reinstituted Passover, which had not been celebrated for generations, and then he also did some projects that were just practical and useful and helpful. He properly secured the city's water supply. Because one of the things that Hezekiah understood as a king was that in Jerusalem, even if you go there today, they've got a pretty decent setup. It's on the top of a hill, and so it's easily defended against, with one exception in Hezekiah's time, and that was that the water supply for the city was outside of the walls. And so if you're an attacking force coming against them, you just make sure that they don't get any water and there's no way that they can hold off very long against your attack. And so Hezekiah scratches his head and thought, this isn't good, we don't want that. How are we gonna figure this one out? And so he actually invested quite a lot of resources in diverting the main water source in the city of Jerusalem to inside of the city walls. He built tunnels and aqueducts uh, because he realized that that was going to be a way that he could help protect the city against attack. And they still actually stand today. If you go to Jerusalem now, you can do a little tour. of it, And it's called Hezekiah's Tunnels. Because he built it and it still uh, is standing today. So the point of that is Hezekiah, this guy was industrious. His trust in God also meant that he acted. And so some of you 
struggle in this area of like getting going. You struggle to make friends in a place like Jericho because you don't initiate. You're like, God, I pray you'd bring me friends. And God said someone new next to you. And you're like, God, give me friends, give me friends. God's like, just reach out your hand and say hi to the person that's sitting next to you. <sighs> Try and take a little bit of a step in that. Initiate. And when someone doesn't reciprocate, sometimes you think to yourself, oh, well, people aren't really friendly here. I've given it a try. But God might need you to be persistent in that. So sometimes we need to keep after things for a long period of time. Sometimes we need to take action in some ways. Sometimes trust in God also involves action on our part. But Hezekiah's troubles are not over. His trust in God does not solve all of his problems for us, him. Remember the king of Assyria we talked about last week. Uh, and he attacked and destroyed Samaria. And that same king thought, you know what? While we're here, we've got the whole army. Let's just keep going. Let's roll on into Judah and take them over as well. So he mounts a massive military campaign against Judah. So let's keep reading in 2 Kings 18 verse 13 and following. So in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, King Sennacherib of Assyria came and he attacked the fortified towns of Judah. He conquered them. King Hezekiah sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lashish. I've done wrong. I'll pay whatever tribute money you demand if you'll only withdraw. The king of Assyria then demanded a settlement of more than 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold. This is a lot of money. To gather this amount, King Hezekiah decides, you know what? We have to pay it. We, we're not really ready for this kind of attack at this point. So to gather this amount, King Hezekiah used all of the silver stored in the temple of the Lord and in the palace treasury. He even stripped the gold from the doors of the Lord's temple, from the doorposts he'd overlaid with gold, and then he gave it all to the Assyrian king. Poor Hezekiah. <laughs> when other kings pay tribute to the king of Assyria... The king of Assyria goes away, especially if it's as large of an amount of this. But for whatever reason, the king of Assyria takes all of his tribute money and then says, fantastic, thank you so much for paying that. We're still going to attack you. <laughs> and so it does not go well for this. Assyria still surrounds Jerusalem, takes up position against the city, and is ready to conquer and attack it. And so here's the other thing that strikes me about Hezekiah's life. Sometimes we do the right thing. Sometimes we think, okay, God, I'm trusting you on this particular action. So we think God's gonna make our life easy then, that with God helping us, things will turn out great. But in Hezekiah's situation, he does all of those things. And yes, verse seven says Hezekiah was successful in everything that he did, but he still actually has a really hard go of things. And I'm not quite sure how to express this as a transferable principle for us. So I'll simply suggest that we need to be careful about overly simplistic narratives about life with God. We would be wise to ask ourselves, what kind of a story am I telling myself about what it means to do life with God? Because sometimes... We have a narrative that goes, well, if I just come to God and give God my life, God will solve all of my problems for me. And then when problems come into our life, we get confused and thinking, but God, aren't you going to solve all of these for me? Sometimes we have a narrative that says, and it can come from innocuous places like 
Well, there's a hymn that says, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. That's not been true in my experience. Some days with Jesus are rougher than the day before. But if we believe to ourselves, oh, every day is going to be just awesome with Jesus, when trouble and difficulties come into our lives, we're mystified by them. And so be careful about what story you're telling yourself. We think things like, well, if I have God in my life, why am I snorkeling with pornography? Why is my job so hard? Why is finding a new job so hard? I mean, I prayed about it. Why is parenting at this stage of life so challenging? Just because God is with you does not mean that you don't have struggles and troubles and problems. It's like a patient in the hospital. Things can go from bad to good to not as bad to really bad to kind of okay pretty quickly. And it can be the same thing in our lives. Hezekiah does these incredible reforms, like just does things that no king has had the willingness to do in terms of leading people to follow God. But even his incredible reforms, the king of Assyria still surrounds his city and is still going to take them out. And so his incredible reforms don't save, quote unquote, everyone. And we're going to see how this plays out in the story in subsequent chapters in 2 Kings. Because in Hezekiah's case, just because God was with him does not mean that everything was easy. He still faces very real and very present dangers and challenges in his life. So let's look at those. 2 Kings uh, chapter 18, verses 19 to 25. The king of Assyria uh, sends some uh, envoys, his chief of staff, and gives a message to Hezekiah. This is what the great king of Assyria says. What are you trusting in that makes you so confident? Oh, you think mere words can substitute for military skill and strength? Who are you counting on that you've rebelled against me? Oh, you're counting on Egypt? Oh yeah, if you lean on Egypt, that's going to be like a reed, a staff that splinters beneath your weight and pierces your hand. Pharaoh, king of Egypt? Yeah, he's completely unreliable. Don't be trusting in him. Oh, perhaps you'll say, oh, we're trusting in the Lord our God. And this is where the king of Assyria gets a little bit wrong. Isn't he the one who was insulted by Hezekiah? Didn't Hezekiah tear down that God's shrines and altars and make everybody in Judah and Jerusalem worship only in the altar here at Jerusalem? I'll tell you what the king of Assyria says. Strike a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you can find even that many men to ride on them, with your little tiny army. How can you think of challenging even the weakest contingent of my master's troops, even with the help of Egypt's chariots and charioteers? What's more, do you think that we have come and invaded your land without the Lord's direction? See, even the king of Assyria is like, God told me to come here. The Lord himself told us, attack this land and destroy it. The king of Assyria sends his staff to threaten Hezekiah. And they get some things right and some things wrong. But they make this claim, God told me so. And Hezekiah's team responds in an interesting way. They say to them, um, hey, thank you so much for this message. 
just a few requests for you. First of all, could you not speak to us in Aramaic, which is the language, or sorry, could you speak to us in Aramaic? That's the trade language of between nations, so only the really educated people know that. These guys from the emissaries from the king of Assyria are speaking in Hebrew, so everybody on the wall can hear it. And so Hezekiah's team is like, hey, people are gonna get nervous if you start saying all of those things and rumors are gonna spread. Can you speak to just us? The three of us know and speak Aramaic, so like, let's have our own little meeting privately so that just us know what's going on. So how many of you in this room speak another language? Put your hand up if you speak another language. Okay, uh, what language do you speak? Sandy? French, okay. Ali, what do you speak? Passable Swahili? That's my guess. Okay, all right. Toru? Japanese? Okay, anybody else speak Japanese? Okay, anybody else speak Passable Swahili? Oh, I don't know. I don't, that's for sure. Okay, who else? What's French? Okay, what else? What was another language? Somebody else had hands up for another language. German? How many German speakers do we have? Oh, we have more. Okay, so here's what I want. Yeah, you're, you're like, okay. So say something in German that, the, that those who are German speakers will understand and the rest of us will be like right over our heads, all right? Did you catch that? Did you, did you figure it out? No? Okay. All right. A few. Who else, who else speaks passable German? Or say something else. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right? What other languages do we have represented? Spanish. Yeah. Joyce. Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. Mandarin or Cantonese? Mandarin. Okay. Now, do we have any other Mandarin speakers? Yeah, Constance, okay, say something in Mandarin that only you and Constance will understand. <laughs> the rest of us know that. Yeah, yeah, because we've watched children's TV, so we count that much. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but here's the point of that, right? If you and only a few other people speak a language, you can communicate amongst yourselves, and the rest of the people are like, I don't know what they said. No, they're having their own little private club meeting over there. And so Hezekiah's team is like, please, can you do that? Because we don't want the rest of the people to get threatened. And, and the king of Assyria is like, Oh no, we want you to feel threatened. We want your whole nation to actually be trembling. We're gonna send this around. And uh, so Hezekiah's leaders ask for this. But the king of Assyria sends messengers to the wall and shouts loudly in the language that everyone will hear in verse 32. Don't listen to Hezekiah when he tries to mislead you by saying, the Lord will rescue us. Have any gods of any other nations ever saved people from the king of Assyria? What god of any nation has ever been able to save its people from my power? What makes you think that the Lord can rescue Jerusalem from me, says the king of Assyria? So panic and fear begins to spread because the Assyrian army has totally surrounded the city. And it's a big army. It's the largest fighting force in the ancient world at this time. And Hezekiah does the right thing in this moment, which is likely why his spiritual health assessment is strong. Instead of freaking out, he goes to prayer. 
he sends word to the prophet Isaiah to seek an answer from the Lord. Meanwhile, the king of Assyria receives word that the king of Ethiopia is coming to attack him. And so before leaving, the king of Assyria writes a letter to Hezekiah, and it says basically, I'll be back. And Hezekiah, again, does the right thing, takes the letter, and instead of freaking out, it says in 2 Kings 19, verses 14 to 16, after Hezekiah received the letter and read it, he went up to the Lord's temple. He spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed, Lord, God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all of the kingdoms of the earth. You created the heavens and the earth. Bend down, Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to these words of defiance against the living God. And this is the fifth and final lesson that we learn from Hezekiah's posture. He takes that, temp, that letter to the temple of the Lord. See, how we respond in trouble exposes really some of our truest beliefs about life and about ourselves. What do you do when difficulty comes? What do you do when challenges come in to your life? Often when we're faced with challenges, our first thought is, what can I do, what can I do? For example, when we were waiting for our building permit, you know, my mind starts to go, who do we know at City Hall? Can we get any leverage anywhere? And all of these kinds of thoughts. And my sense as I was praying that was that God was saying, Brad, you need to be still and know that I am at work in this situation. Trust me. Or years ago, when my wife Meg and I were struggling and wrestling with infertility, my thought was, okay, we got this. We're gonna push through, we're gonna make it, we're gonna do all of these things. And God gave us in that moment a scripture verse saying, wait, trust in my timing. What do you do when difficulties come into your life? Because that says a lot about where your trust is. Hezekiah places his trust and his confidence fully in God. And God responds in this instance with powerful and miraculous deliverance. Look further in 2 Kings 19, verse 35. That night, God sends a message through the prophet Isaiah and says, I will defend this city. I have heard this, this blasphemy against me. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out into the Assyrian camp and struck down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. And then Sinatra broke camp and returned to his own land. He went home to his capital of Nineveh and he stayed there and he never returned. See, they didn't even have to fight the battle because the Lord stepped in and fought the battle for them. Anne-Marie and the worship team are gonna come and lead us in songs that remind us about that place of trust and confidence. And as they do that, I want you to reflect. Maybe there's a situation in your life that you can think of that you need God to show God's power. Maybe it's in the realm of finances for you. Maybe you need a new job. Maybe you need to see God do a work in your life, maybe a miracle in your family. Maybe God's intervention in your health 
in some way. Maybe it's just something day to day and routine. And we would welcome that to pray for you in that way. Because going for prayer, which we practice regularly here at Jericho, is not an admission of weakness. It's simply an act of saying, God, I depend on you. I trust you in the midst of some deep waters in my life. And so we want to join God in that process. And prayer is one way that we do this. And so our prayer team is available at the back. Meg's back there. Katie's back there. Allie is on today. I'm on today as well. We would love to stand with you and pray and faith and ask that God would move into that situation in your life and do that miraculous thing that only God can do. And for you, maybe today that's an act of faith and we would love to pray with you. I want to invite you to stand if you're able and the team will lead us in two songs of response. And these songs invite us to consider where we are putting our trust and our faith and our confidence in. So let's worship together and let this be our declaration of truth or a declaration of intent.